Welcome to Imaginately Podcast, where we share stories both old and new to transport and inspire you. I'm your host, R.K. Smith, and this season we're back with Princess Irene and Curdie in part two of George MacDonald's beloved series, The Princess and Curdie. So settle in and get cozy as your imagination takes flight. Chapter 27, More Vengeance. Let's begin. As soon as they were gone, Curdie brought the creatures back to the servants' hall and told them to eat up everything on the table. It was a sight to see them all standing around it, except such as had to get upon it, eating and drinking each after its fashion, without a smile or a word or a glance of fellowship in the act. A very few moments served to make everything edible vanish, and then Curdie requested them to clean the house and the page who stood by to assist them. Everyone set about it except Ballbody. He could do nothing at cleaning, for the more he rolled, the more he spread the dirt. Curdie was curious to know what he had been and how he had come to be such as he was, but he could only conjecture that he was a gluttonous alderman whom nature had treated homeopathically. And now there was such a cleaning and clearing out of neglected places, such a burying and burning of refuse, such a rinsing of jugs, such a swilling of sinks, and such a flushing of drains as would have delighted the eyes of all true housekeepers and lovers of cleanliness. Gertie, meantime, was with the king, telling him all he had done. They had heard a little noise, but not much, for he had told the avengers to repress outcry as much as possible, and they had seen to it that the more anyone cried out, the more he had to cry out upon, while the patient ones they scarcely heard at all. Having promised his majesty and her royal highness a good breakfast, Curdie now went to finish the business. The courtiers must be dealt with. A few who were the worst, and the leaders of the rest, must be made examples of, and the others would be driven to the streets. He found the chiefs of the conspiracy holding a final consultation in the smaller room off the hall. These were the Lord Chamberlain, the Attorney General, the Master of the Horse, and the King's private secretary. The Lord Chancellor and the rest, as foolish as faithless, were but the tools of these. The housemaid had shown him a little closet opening from a passage behind, where he could overhear all that passed in that room. And now Curdie heard enough to understand that they had determined, in the dead of that night, rather in the deepest dark before the morning, to bring a certain company of soldiers into the palace, make away with the king, secure the princess, announce the sudden death of his majesty, read as his the will they had drawn up, and proceed to govern the country at their ease and with results. They would at once levy severer taxes and pick a quarrel with the most powerful of the neighbors. Everything settled. They agreed to retire and have a few hours quiet sleep first, all but the secretary, who was to sit up and call them at the proper moment. Curdie allowed them half an hour to get to bed, and then set about completing his purge of the palace. First he called Lena, and opened the door of the room where the secretary sat. She crept in and laid herself down against it. When the secretary, rising to stretch his legs, caught sight of her eyes, he stood frozen with terror. She made neither motion nor sound. Gathering courage, and taking the thing for a spectral illusion, he made a step forward. She showed her teeth with a growl neither more than audible nor less than horrible. 
the secretary sank, fainting into a chair. He was not a brave man, and besides, his conscience had gone over to the enemy and was sitting against the door by Lena. To the Lord Chamberlain's door next, Curdie conducted the leg serpent and let him in. Now his lordship had had a bed sand made for himself, sweetly fashioned of rods of silver gilt. Upon it, the leg serpent found him asleep, and under it he crept. But out he came the other side and crept over it next and again under it, and so over it and under it and over it five or six times, every time leaving a coil of himself behind him, until he had softly folded all his length about the Lord Chamberlain in his bed. This done, he set his head, looking down with curved neck, right over his lordship's, and began to hiss in his face. He woke in terror unspeakable, and would have started up, but the moment he moved, the leg serpent drew his coils closer and closer still, and drew and drew until the quaking traitor heard the joints of his bed grinding and gnarring. Presently he persuaded himself that it was only a horrid nightmare, and began to struggle with all his strength to throw it off. Thereupon the leg serpent gave his hooked nose such a bite that his teeth met through it, but it was hardly thicker than a bowl of a spoon. And then the vulture knew that he was in the grasp of his enemy, the snake, and yielded. As soon as he was quiet, the leg serpent began to untwist and retwist, to uncoil and recoil himself, swinging and swaying, nodding and relaxing himself, with strangest curves and convolutions, always, however, leaving at least one coil around his victim. At last he undid himself entirely and crept from the bed. Then first the Lord Chamberlain discovered that his tormentor had bent and twisted the bedstand, legs and canopy all, so about him that he was shut in a silver cage out of which it was impossible for him to find a way. Once more, thinking his enemy was gone, he began to shout for help. But the instant he opened his mouth, his keeper darted at him and bit him. And after three or four such essays, he lay still. The master of the horse, Curdie, gave in charge to the taper. When the soldier saw him enter, for he was not yet asleep, he sprang from his bed and flew at him with his sword. But the creature's hide was invulnerable to his blows, and he pecked at his legs with his proboscis until he jumped into bed again, groaning, and covered himself up. After which the taper contented himself with, now and then, paying a visit to his toes. As for the attorney general, Curdie led to his door a huge spider, about two feet long in the body, which, having made an excellent supper, was full of webbing. The attorney general had not gone to bed, but sat in a chair asleep before a great mirror. He had been trying the effect of a diamond star which he had that morning taken from the jewel room. When he woke, he fancied himself paralyzed. Every limb, every finger even, was motionless. Coils and coils of broad spider ribbon bandaged his members to his body, and all to the chair. In the glass he saw himself wound about with slavery infinite. On a footstool a yard off sat the spider, glaring at him. Clubhead had mounted guard over the butler, where he lay tied hand and foot under the third cask. From that cask he had seen the wine run into a great bath, and therein he expected to be drowned. The doctor, with his crushed leg, needed no one to guard him, 
and now Curdie proceeded to the expulsion of the rest. Great men or underlings, he treated them all alike. From room to room over the house he went, and sleeping or waking, took the man by the hand. Such was the state to which a year of wicked rule had reduced the moral condition of the court, that in it all he found but three with human hands. The possessors of these he allowed to dress themselves and depart in peace. When they perceived his mission and how he was backed, they yielded. Then commenced a general hunt to clear the house of vermin. Out of their beds and in their night clothing, out of their rooms, gorgeous chambers, or garret nooks, the creatures hunted them. Not one was allowed to escape. Tumult and noise there was little, for fear was too deadly for outcry. Ferreting them out everywhere, following them upstairs and downstairs, yielding no instant of repose except upon the way out, the avengers persecuted the miscreants until the last of them was shivering outside the palace gates, with hardly sense enough left to know where to turn. When they set out to look for shelter, they found every inn full of servants expelled before them, and not one would yield his place to a superior suddenly leveled with himself. Most houses refused to admit them on the ground of the wickedness that must have drawn on them such a punishment, and not a few would have been left in the streets all night had not Durba, roused by the vain entreaties of the doors on each side of her cottage, opened hers, and given up everything to them. The Lord Chancellor was only too glad to share a mattress with the stable boy and steal his bare feet under his jacket. In the morning, Curdie appeared, and the outcasts were in terror, thinking he had come after them again. But he took no notice of them. His object was to request Durba to go to the palace. The king required her services. She need take no trouble about her cottage, he said. The palace was henceforward her home. She was the king's chatelaine over men and maidens of his household. And this very morning, she must cook his majesty a nice breakfast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm so glad we were able to imagine this story together. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything from Imaginately Podcast. And be sure to tell your friends so they can imagine with us too. Until next time, happy dreams, whether by day or night. Hey friend, R.K. Smith here, Canadian author, editor, and storyteller. If you have a story idea you'd like to see on this podcast, go to rksmith.ca and send me a message. I'd love to hear from you and want to share the stories you want to hear with the world.